0: Hello and welcome to today's edition of Pipe Up the Organ Podcast. I'm David Pipe and today joining me is the composer Hugh Morgan. Welcome, Hugh.
1: Hello. Great to talk to you, David.
0: Well, we've got Hugh here today uh, partly because his music is featuring on Monday's recital, this coming Monday the 15th. Um, And also for me, it's a particular treat to welcome him. He's one of my great friends and we've worked across the years on various projects, be it with choirs, recordings, electronics, the list really does go on. Um, But I think, Hugh, a lot of people may have known uh, that you're a composer from things like Firehead Editions, you're one of the in-house composers there, but I know you're really quite a musical polymath. Perhaps you could give us a little bit of a a flavour of perhaps a potted history, even of what you've been up to as a musician.
1: Well, it's, um, yes, potted history, polymath, these these are good words. Um, uh, Composing is a relatively recent thing for me, and it's something that I've only really taken seriously since I graduated from the Royal Academy of Music, where, of course, we met. So it's a recent thing. Um, I was an organ scholar at Oxford. I have worked in various financial services as well, so it hasn't always been music as a whole. hasn't always been a central part of my life. But uh, uh, the return to the Royal Academy has um, really, really focused my musical work. And so uh, I've been an organist, I've studied choral conducting, I've managed His Majesty's Sackbutts and Cornets, I've been a record producer, in fact that was my first job. In 1997 I was a a trainee record producer for Meridian Records, I've managed a a mail-order CD department of... um, Uh, chain of record shops. Um, We specialised in historical opera recordings. So uh, yeah, I've really done, I've really been around the houses musically, jack of all trades, and certainly not a a master of any of them.
0: I'm sure we could disagree on that one. Now, we're, we're, on, on Monday, we're going to hear two of your shorter pieces, two of your hymn preludes. I know there's, there's obviously a CD's worth of organ music, and we'll hear about that in a second. But could you tell us how you came to write these hymn preludes? I guess some people would know them as, as chorale preludes, but these are very definitely called hymn preludes, aren't they?
1: Yes, I don't quite know why I, I, I chose that rather than chorale preludes. For, I suppose for me, chorale prelude implies something uh, explicitly Germanic. Um, um, whereas hymn prelude could be a little bit more all-encompassing, so that's probably my thinking for for choosing that title. And um, these are part of a series, an ongoing series I've done, many to provide myself with some new liturgical resources, but uh, um, also published through Firehead um, to 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 provide them to a wider um, audience of people. The, the idea is they're for the most part uh, quite straightforward. They have to be because I have to play them. <laughs> and they they cover the liturgical year more or less, so I think we've got one for Passion Tide and one for Easter coming up on the uh, on the broadcast. So one of them, certainly the Herzliebster uh, Jesu, was was written when I was living in New Zealand and dedicated to a lovely friend there, um, Anne Cleaver, who's an organist of Hamilton Cathedral, uh, and that's where I I wrote it and gave the first performance.
0: It's a particularly beautiful piece that uh, because it's got this. Uh, oscillating effect in the manuals. Um, and in, in fact, again, many listeners will know that uh, I, I play an awful lot of Hughes music, and we'll talk about the CD we did shortly. But I was lucky enough to play in Germany last year in a uh, Vox Organi festival, in fact, linked to Freetown Flammer, who gave our recital a couple of weeks ago. And uh, it was in a, a lovely, as with so many of these churches, this lovely, bright, open space. And it had a wonderful. Though a modern organ, it was a wonderful recreation of a Baroque instrument. And I remember playing this chorale prelude and having just uh, two eight-foot stops, flute stops, wafting around the building and the pedal uh, playing the the chorale theme. And in fact, on the back of that, Friedhelm, who, uh, again, many of our listeners will know, has an extensive discography plays all around the world, was so taken with these pieces. And I think I'm right. He's, He's now playing some of your music too.
1: He does, yes, and, um, and I, th- I think they've been lucky enough to get their series up and running um, in in the flesh, so to speak, uh, recently, and he played a, a couple of my, my little pieces, I think Lullaby and Aria he included in his recital there, which is very kind of him, um, so he's a very generous man and a fine player, of course.
0: Oh, he's a great player, isn't he? I think the innovation and the imagination he gets out of some of these particularly these German Baroque pieces, which we could see on the page and think, well, what do you do? It's a change of section. It's a change of metre. But I was listening just the other day to a Lübeck piece he played, uh, and there's so much colour. When we look at it on the page, it might look a little bit, I don't want to say dull, but it's the first word that comes to mind. But when you hear someone of that pedigree really bringing it to life, it, it transforms the music, doesn't it?
1: It really does. And I, I think the very best of that music, and I'm, I'm thinking specifically of Buxtehude here, it speaks for itself. Um, but uh, but some of the other composers, they need to be lifted off the page, and he's just got a great gift for that. I, 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 I think his recordings, uh, I think it's a CPO, is that right? Yes, I
0: that's right, exactly. Uh,
1: I, I might have a number of them on my shelves, actually. I, I think they're super, <laughs> I really do. I, I, he's, he's a great interpreter of that music.
0: And I've been skirting around the, the topic of, of your CD, but I think now is a, a, as good a time as any to jump in and talk about it. Tell us a little bit about the CD. It's, it's called Invocations, uh, it was brought out last year. Can you give us a, a little idea of of what 's on it and perhaps how it came about
1: sure well I, I come back from living in New Zealand, and uh, it seemed a good time to uh, summarize the works that i 'd written and what i 'd done up to up to that point i just about to have my my first child, and life was going to take a different direction for a while so um, it was nice to nice to collate everything together into one place. Um, so we discussed this and we thought about places where it, uh, it might take place um, and uh, it's not a complete recording. I was actually mixed emotions to realise exactly how much I'd written and it does not fit onto one CD. <laughs> that was a bit of an eye-opener actually, <laughs> think of, of just squeezing out the odd composition here and there but actually the, the, there was a lot. Uh, so Invocations, the title comes from uh, a piece that you in fact commissioned for a performance at York Minster in 2012, uh, Invocation and Dance, and um, I think it's probably one of the most substantial pieces I've done and certainly uh, the cornerstone of this recording. And, there's of course, there's another large-scale piece on the disc, the Partita Borealis, from 2014, which you also commissioned uh, and very kindly gave the first performance in Bergen um, in the International Organ Festival there. Um, And then dotted around it a, a, a various little smaller pieces, including something that I've uh, put together as a triptych, the um, dialogues and fanfare and the lullaby, but actually they were all written at different times and they work, I think, as, as standalone pieces, uh, and various other smaller pieces, in- including a, a prelude which was written for the recording. It's actually um, composed specifically for this collection. So um, so yes, it, for me it's a very it's a very personal thing. It's um, it's a lovely thing to to have as a sort of summary of, of of what I've been up to. There are various other things that I I rather enjoyed about this. Sort of the cyclical element, of course. My my first job in 97, 1997 was working for Meridian Records, and it's on Meridian Records. So that's 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 a nice sort of full circle thing. Um, and again, working with Richard, Hughes, the the uh, extremely good engineer there. Uh, for the first time, for well over twenty years, that was great fun as well. <laughs> I think it's fair to say we had a lot of fun
0: doing that recording. So, well, it was it was great fun, wasn't it? And we obviously we recorded it in Bridlington Priory, um, which is an organ I had played several times before. I was lucky enough to have been invited to give a recital on it several years before we went and recorded. But could you tell us why that organ, uh, certainly in my mind, worked so well for your music?
1: Well, I, I think I mean it was entirely your idea and. Um, I I was initially quite sceptical until I I heard the instrument and found out more about it and um, it's got an enormous palette of sounds um, but I was particularly taken by the the variety of mutations it has which are quite important in my music and the directness of of those reeds they're this, um, they're they're really quite um, they're not forceful is not quite the right word but they're certainly uh, very direct at least uh, and that that really appealed to me. And I think when we got there and we we started to record the the instrument and setting up the sound, we realised that it it had such a palette that the building itself was became less of a feature, and we wanted to record quite closely. So I think I'm right in thinking there are five different eight foot flutes on on the instrument, all with different qualities.
0: It, I th- I think that's right. It was. Uh... I know we fiddle around in some of, the, some of the quieter pieces, particularly we try to do, um, for example, four-foot flutes. I think there's an ocarina, a four-foot ocarina on the grate, and using that down the octave. And, uh, and it is a very large organ. It's, it's by no means the largest in the country, or indeed the region. But we found that such was the quality, uh, and I think it was Anisson's originally, the Belgian builder, and most recently Nicholson's of, of Malvern, have done that fantastic restoration. But we found that there's so much quality isn't there and you mentioned those reeds um i think to say the reeds sound continental is probably a rather vague point but there's a real sort of edge to them isn't there a real brashness yeah
1: yeah and and i think that th- th- they're a particular feature in, and i think there's the original anison's reeds as well because I, I was very lucky to play in the ypres ypres cathedral in the autumn last year and that is an anison's instrument. and the the Um, it was instantly familiar from the recording, listening to to the flutes and the reeds particularly, um, but also a surprising number of mutations again on that instrument. So that was was a lovely experience and and tied in um, very nicely, actually, in in my mind.
0: It was a great quality instrument, and I do remember we recorded, I think we must have recorded just around Easter time, and it was quite cold, and and I have a vivid memory of going out on the seafront, and we couldn't see anything because it's so misty. But there is a point to this uh, this little tangent I'm going on to we, we had a lot of issues didn't we with the building um we um, did
1: we did and it, it, I think it's a problem with with recording it's um I, I certainly find recording on location is you can just never quite foresee everything and and of course it was it was perishing cold and, and I remember those banks of fog coming in off the north north sea and and I think the rest of the country was actually relatively balmy in, in, in that April, so we obviously just just caught some some local weather. <laughs> uh, and then so they they very kindly had the heating on for us, and then turned it off before we recorded, and that that was great. That was a nice thing to do. But of course, as the heating cooled, it, it ticked and it clicked, and there was a actually surprising amount of editing we had to do around that just just to to get rid of some of those noises. Uh, and I think there are still a few on the recording which we, we just had to leave because we particularly liked those takes.
0: Not just covering my wrong notes. <laughs> well, oh, well, no, there were, there were very, very
1: few of those, David, very few of those. Um, but um, but I, I I also remember that the recording, the position we found for the microphones was really, as I mentioned earlier, it was really quite close, and I, I think looking for that detail and the directness of the sound, which um, I'm increasingly attracted to in organ recordings, and I, I, um, I found find slightly blousy over resonant things a bit, a bit of a turn-off these days so so that was great but the the, the best position for the microphones was was higher almost directly above the console which is out in the uh at the edge of the chancel and so so of course there's the, hearing the bench creak and the stop noises it's all it's all there but they, again that doesn't really bother me because it, it, it does remind us that it's a human being playing this music, which is something we can lose sight of with the organ, I think, sometimes. It's
0: very true, isn't it? I think particularly in uh, churches or cathedrals where the organist is entirely hidden. Um, and, and we, we, we could go on here. I, I feel a rant coming in almost about people ch- people chatting during organ music in services. But you're right, you're right, there is that... It's very hard, isn't it, to get that human quality that a, a concert pianist or, indeed, a, a concerto violin soloist, whatever, would be able to get without any great issue and you're absolutely right i think often people see the organist if he or she speaks before a recital and takes a bow after but you're sort of almost dislocated aren't you from the sound other than that one brief uh sight of the player before or after
1: that's that's right and i, I think it's it, it's it makes going to an organ recital a, um, a, a unique event amongst concerts at, um I remember someone describing it once as an acousmatic experience, as as if the music was just simply played through speakers somewhere in the building, um, and because the organ is actually quite a large sound source as well, and it's uh, um, it, it can be diffused through the building the same way that a speaker system might, um, which might tie in with the discussion of organ electronics later. But um, but yeah, so it's quite an unusual experience. And of course, we both we're both used to performing with a, a video screen, which can bring the performer to, to the audience, because I find that a terrifying experience. I never really understood why somebody would like to look at my shoddy pedal technique or my you know, big bearded <laughs> face gurning into the camera, and I may play a wrong <laughs> note, but um, uh, some people seem to think it enhances the experience anyway. It's
0: become quite an important thing, and I, I think particularly at the moment where um, it's impossible to go to live recitals, and a lot of people are doing streaming live or not over YouTube. I'm sure from now on we're going to find even more of this, with uh, be it a live stream or, or indeed just slightly higher quality um, video coverage of a player. I think it, I'm sure it will be a good thing, really.
1: I think it will. I mean, people are learning new technical skills uh, in this period, and I'm sure they'll be applied once live performance starts again. Although again, I still think in my case it probably won't enhance the experience for for anyone. But um, but but uh, I think it's um, I think it's a good thing. I think you're absolutely right. I, I think the the um, the organ needs to be humanized a little bit more. Uh, that's, that's certainly one thing that needs to happen with it, at least.
0: Oh, I agree. Now we've been talking a little bit about some of the commissions you mentioned: invocation and dance, and the partita. Um, and I've been lucky enough to give the first performance of another of your pieces. Um, which I didn't commission, but was a mutual friend of ours. Um, can we just chat a little bit about the, and I think it's fair to say unusual, the unusual opportunity for a performer to uh, work closely and to engage with a composer. Um, and, I, and I want just to mention that point, we, that idea we both share, that every organ recital should include a piece by a living composer.
1: I completely agree with that. And I, I, I think um, it, it's been a philosophy of mine for for a while, and certainly one, that, uh, I'm I'm almost heading to towards playing only music by living composers. Although I, I need to find enough that I can get my fingers around, <laughs> um, but but uh, and and then of course it'd be very sad not to play Bach Bach and Beethoven, but yes, the, the 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 relationship between the the composer and performer, particularly for a first performances, I I find that personally very rewarding. I, I I like the the fact that it's symbiotic. It's a two way. Dialogue um, that uh, new ideas, new light can be thrown on the music uh, by the performer. New ideas for sound, for registration combinations, for tempi, adding space, things that don't quite work. So it's, and I think particularly with the organ, which is very site specific, you might write a piece without knowing particularly which instrument it's going to be performed on first, and and then the the composition might then be informed by that instrument and the performer's knowledge of that instrument. So it's, it's a very rich, um, uh, rich relationship and one that I, I particularly value, I have to say.
0: It's a, it's a great way of working. And it, it, it makes me think actually of your prelude you mentioned, which we, we put on the CD. Um, now, this is a slightly nerve-wracking, if rewarding, seat-of-the-pants way of working. But I, I vaguely remember, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that that piece was sort of written as we went along. And I remember us changing uh of the pedal part and registrations in bridlington to see what worked do, do you think uh, is there some mileage do you think in uh, almost revising a composition as you go along working like that
1: very much so i mean i i can think of colleagues such as our good friend michael bonaventure who are often revising their music and that their music is a sort of living mutable changeable thing as is mine to a lesser degree and I, I think it's it's right to find those compromises or those new visions, particularly when we we're recording like that. we had the chance to to change things and try different things out uh, and have different options recorded that we could put together later in editing that that was that's another privilege of the recording process that isn't necessarily available to, to live performance as well
0: we had to make sure of course you wrote down the details as we did it i remember a couple of pedal parts where one of us had forgotten to write down a registration we were sort of uh <laughs> rather frantically scrapping around to try and work out which mutation we coupled from the choir to the pedals but i think we made it work in the end
1: we we did and i, I remember <laughs> i i certainly didn't make um, detailed enough notes of it because I, I came to, to revise and finalise the score for publication through Firehead and, and I couldn't remember what we'd done. I, <laughs> so I remember we had to have a long correspondence about that, trying to piece it back together again. But but uh, I, I, I found that a particularly satisfying element of the recording, I have to say, uh, and perhaps one of one of my favourite pieces that I've written recently.
0: Now you've mentioned Firehead by name and also Michael Bonaventure, one of your colleagues, but um, I think it's a in my view, a very innovative idea for a, a publishing house to be entirely online. Perhaps you could tell us about Firehead, because I know it's also, it, it's not exclusively based in the UK, is it? You've got some overseas connections.
1: It's about to go into its fifth year, actually. We have our fifth anniversary in September, and it, it was very much set up as a transatlantic partnership, initially between myself and Frederick Fram, who's based in New Mexico and he's a very fine composer of, of organ and choral works, handbell music, chamber music. Um, so for me, it was uh, a, a privilege to be able to, to work with him. And we decided from the very beginning that we'd have no printed material at all, and that all our resources would be available as digital downloads. And that there's an element of trust between yourself and your customers there that somebody isn't going to, to buy Buy it and just photocopy it and distribute the PDF amongst their, their friends. But, but then I guess that's been the same with photocopiers and printed music as well. So it's just a, a different facet of the same problem and the same element of trust. So, yes, yeah, so we've, we've had a, a really good time expanding a catalogue to I think about 250 works now, mainly resources for liturgical music making. Um, so the hymn preludes I mentioned earlier. Uh, larger pieces, choral music for reduced forces or larger scale Um, we've got concert works uh, as well and some some very nice chamber music too that that, uh, Fred and Michael Bonaventure has also written. There are other composers we started to tie in, uh, Jared Aragon who's uh, uh, based in um, in America as well uh, in Tucson in Arizona I think um, is also a very fine young composer. And it's been very rewarding. It's been a lovely partnership. So we're, gonna, we're going to reboot the publishing house come September uh, for our fifth anniversary. And I think we're going to fo- focus a little bit more on uh, our organ music and a little bit less on choral music. Um, mm-hmm. As I think we've had more success, more, um, more performances, more enjoyment, more reward out of the, the organ music we've done. And we're also going to be publishing music for organ and electronics as well Um, we're just getting around the the technical aspects of that at the moment Um, but we're hoping to have a a small but growing catalogue of of pieces for organ with fixed media electronics um, or what would be in the 60s and 70s we call it tape and organ and uh, these are things that even if you just have a built-in sound system in your church um, that you, you know you can access that and you can get your own surround sound Uh, And add another dimension to the instrument, um, which I think is, personally, I think is very important for the instrument's evolution. I'm not rejecting traditional organ music at all. I'm not rejecting virtuosity despite not having any myself. Uh, I'm not rejecting uh, anything in particular. I just find this, for me personally, is an interesting journey to be on. And it's something that can add to the instrument um, and to its repertoire to the, the genre and to people's to experience of listening to, to the instrument in concert and in liturgy as well that's another thing we've been working on
0: well I'm really glad you've you've gone on to that as a really good segue because I was going to ask you about your work with electronics um I've heard a few of your well a good few of your pieces in fact I've played a couple myself and one thing that always astounds me is a to my shame, a non-composer. I, I don't really compose. But one of the things that amazes me is the, almost a limitless possibility that electronics offer. Um, and I've I've played some of the, I'm the first to say, some of the easier pieces you and others, Michael Bonaventure, have written. But when you sit and play even just four notes over a course of about five minutes, you're just constantly amazed by the, the whirlwind. And that's the best word I can think of, the whirlwind of sound that goes on around you. How, how on earth do you think about where to begin with that sort of thing?
1: Well, I, I think initially, um, the first piece I wrote uh, was, a, was a very simple idea that um, required being able to change the pitch of, of the organ in, in a way that just wasn't possible, so it had to be done electronically. And, and once I'd, I'd done that, and, and that was a piece called Adam's Fall, uh, once I'd done that, uh, I, I then became aware of this this sort of huge vista of possibility um and the problem was controlling your excitement it's like going into a playground as a toddler I see, I see my daughter going into a new playground and she just doesn't know what to play with first you know um, and she wants to do it all and, and that, that was the same for, for me and I, I I found that I was basically writing horror film music and using all the gadgets and all the, the, the things and it was great fun and, and, and I'm not rejecting those pieces at all Like I think I, I really enjoyed doing them and the, I certainly do them again because it's it's you know it's a laugh, <laughs> but um, but it, it, over time I I found that the most effective compositions actually had the fewest moving parts, and I I think that's you know that's true of a lot of composition anyway. And for me, the thing I enjoy exploring most is the fact that the organ has a, a, a fixed pitch, uh, and you can use the electronics to play around with that, and you become uncertain of what's the electronics and what's the organ and which bit is is, is moving in pitch and which isn't um, and I find that very rewarding to to the extent where the, the pieces are getting incredibly simple in terms of their construction and also their, their performance as well. I mean, uh, one piece I did recently uh, put some weights on the keys and I went and sat with the audience and listened to it and <laughs> just had to be back in time to turn it all off at the end uh, otherwise that would have been embarrassing but um I think some of them was quite surprised to see me just <laughs> walking about but um but yeah so that's, that's that's a very rewarding thing and there are lots of people working in this genre now um I mean, there, there were people in, in the 60s and 70s uh, did a lot and there's a very good article by Michael uh, Michael Bonaventure again in uh, Organist's Review, I think, um, uh, recently talking about the, the genre and, and its origins and what's happening now. And, and I see it uh, cropping up all over, all over Europe. There's my automatronic colleagues, Michael and, and Lauren Redhead and Alistair Zaldor, uh, Claire Singer, who does a lot at the Union Chapel in London. There's um, mm. people working in Stockholm there, uh, Ellen Artbro and um, Carrie Malone, uh, Amsterdam, and Berlin, uh, our our friend Pam um, actually oh, d- does, yeah, this in, in, does some some beautiful things there, and there's there's a lovely collective in in Montreal as well who who do this work. So, so there's a lot of interest globally in it, and it's and um, it it can be anything. It can be virtuosic. It could be simple. It's it, it just seems like the reinvention of the instrument. It, it's almost as if we're starting again and we're we're exploring again, everything that's available to us. It's very exciting, I feel.
0: You know, I included one of your pieces. Uh, it was in the new year. I did a concert at Huddersfield at the University. Uh, and I think if I'm, if I'm right, it sat next to a bird, Fantasia. Um, and it, it just felt completely natural to have a piece. I think it was one of your newest ones as well. But to have that sitting next to something from several centuries ago, Uh, and I think it's absolutely right you say that there is a place, obviously there's a place for the traditional music, Bach, Buxtehude, etc but I really do hope this sort of composition can can start to be accepted more and indeed heard more.
1: I agree entirely and I I think I found that the people um, who appreciate this music most at the moment don't necessarily come from either an organ or a church music background or even from a classical music background. i think the uh, in, interdisciplinary artists visual artists um, kind of relate to it quite quite quickly and and also people who don't really have any particular sort of, musical training they seem to shed any pre- preconceptions and um, quite quickly and, and just listen to the music you know uh, and if they don't like it that's fine all, all we can ever ask is people just listen once with uh, an open mind <laughs> maybe but um but uh, and i i think you know but i, I think even the surgical can realise that it can be an enhancing thing for their um, their, their workplace for their concerts. I think it's um, it's terribly exciting. It really is. And I
0: I really do hope as well with my I suppose teaching hat on now that this is something that that youngsters I'm thinking primarily GCSE age and upwards, but youngsters can be involved in because. Um, you know, having played some of the very simple compositions for electronics you and Michael have done, uh, they're easy to play, but they sound tremendously effective. And I'm, I'm really, I'm sure this is also a way, and again, it's a, it's a cause close to my heart, of making the organ that much more accessible to those who, who would normally have no natural interest in it.
1: I think that's it. I, I think, um, well, well, kids today, uh, which I, I certainly don't include myself in that anymore, um, but kids today have a natural affinity for for, for working on laptops in their um, in their bedrooms, you, you know, and creating sound and all sorts of things. And they, they seem to do it really quickly. And to be able to marry that with actually playing something that's relatively technically simple on on the organ and put the two together and create this new sound world could be, I hope, very inspiring for them. And it could take them to 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 you know, really interesting musical places. They could. Draw in all sorts of influences and materials from from their their own musical worlds, whatever they like listening to, and put them together and see what happens experiment you know, you know. be be prepared to, to do something that doesn 't work because you might find that it does work
0: that 's half of the game isn 't it particularly playing the organ we, we have to experiment with sounds we I, I, improvising as well and, and see what works um, and, and i 've often found in it, the most modern music which I think is going to get almost howls of despair from listeners has been the piece in a recital which they've really related to the most.
1: I, I agree and I I remember giving a recital um, somewhere, I, I won't say where actually, but I I, I gave a performance of um, a piece by uh, a friend, uh, uh, Luis Enrique Udo, and it's called The Square Root of Two and it was a musical representation of the digits of The Square Root of Two and, and a, a process went through and I I, I love this piece, I think it's beautiful and I, I love the process and, and this sort of strange mystery that comes out of it. And I, I got to the, the concert and I set it up and I thought, well, that sounds lovely in here. And then the audience came and I thought, do you know, this is going to be a hard sell, <laughs> actually. I thought I thought this, this audience, they're, they're not looking for this, they're looking for something far more conventional. And so I took the time before the recital to, to explain to them exactly what the piece was and how it worked and how they should listen to it. And I got tremendously positive feedback from that, um, and it, that was a really heartening and, and um, very formative experience for me as well. Uh, that actually, it really does pay to to engage your audience um, uh, and make sure they they know what to expect. Uh, I, I suppose the ideal is people should just turn up with an open mind and and no preconceptions of the music, but but that can be quite um, that can close people off from. From the music as well so they, they just might not be able to find a way into it. So so even just a couple of sentences can help people find their way into the music and that was a real lesson for me.
0: It does come back to that point about engaging with your audience and they realise that the organist is a, a real living human being and not just a you know we're not just pressing a play button in some distant organ loft
1: exactly although you know <laughs> wouldn't it be nice if we could do that and go out for a cup of tea well, never done well, that sometimes.
0: honest. <laughs> <laughs> no i'm gonna i'm gonna come full circle now as it for were. Sure. we've been talking, we started talking about recordings and as, as a shameless plug for what we're going to hear on monday monday the 15th let's talk a little bit about Liszt and brahms um, I'm glad you we got there, I really we am. We ought to get there. You <laughs> mentioned, obviously, that as well as composing, playing, conducting, you had worked as a, a recording producer. And now this is a great skill that I was delighted to call upon. Uh, I think it was, gosh, it must have been nine years ago when we recorded that in York Minster. Um, so one, one of the pieces we're going to hear on Monday in the, the YouTube Lee Off Live recital, in fact, two of the pieces, but one I'm going to speak about now, was an arrangement of the last movement of Brahms' Fourth Symphony, which is a, a Passacaglia. Um, now, we feature this uh, as, a, as part of a disc of the organ, original organ works and transcriptions of Liszt and Brahms. Um, he, perhaps, you, as a sort of recorder and uh, registrant and all, all the other things you did in that recording, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about bringing a piece such as that onto the organ.
1: Well, uh, for a start you're being too modest, because modest it's your own arrangement and a very fine one <laughs> of that um, of that that last movement, uh, uh, and incredibly effective, I think. And just just before we get to the recording, I, I I do think there's one thing the organ is particularly good at is is that transposition from orchestra to to organ of of these big symphonic pieces, and I think this is a very very good example of that. In fact, my family and I listened to it over lunch today, just to refresh my memory. And I was struck again. I, you're too kind. What an excellent <laughs> transcription! What an excellent performance! Uh, what a brilliant piece of music it is, as well. And I, I think it, it's it's a, a fantastic way to, to round off this um, this this disc. I, I I love the combination of Liszt and Brahms. I, I'm I'm not sure in real life they, they got on that well, actually. But uh, but certainly, I I think you know the the seriousness. Uh, there's, there's archaic, interest interesting archaic forms of, of Brahms and that, um, he can be quite difficult to listen to difficult to play because he is complex he is cerebral but there's, there's so much detail and beauty and, and gravity in his music um, and you put it alongside the, 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 the gothic fairy tale Fantasies of, of List, um, and it's a great partnership. So it's a lovely, lovely programme um, that you came up with uh, with the, the Giu uh, arrangement of, of the BACH, the List BACH, and um, Nicholas Kynaston's arrangement of uh, Funerai as well. Uh, and of course, you're also your own arrangement of uh, Il Penseroso from Anita Pellerinage as well. Uh, oh, yes, it's a lovely piece, lovely, it? it's, it's lovely very, piece of very music. Short, it's very uh, short, but it, it
0: works. In fact, I was when I was a student. We had a trans, uh, transcription class, and we were asked. Each of us was given a, a piece. I think it was all list, in fact, to transcribe. And uh, it, it just struck me that that one worked so well on the organ it had it has this brooding quality doesn 't it and uh, And we spoke about Bridlington about capturing a building well, I think the the York recording, as people will hear on monday we, we really did go for the building as much as the instrument
1: we did uh, and uh, i 'm still conflicted as to whether that was the right thing to do or not but 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 it, <laughs> it, it, it you know hugely effective I think there's um there's an EMI recording that great cathedral series from the 60s where it's very closely recorded and that would have made it an entirely different experience listening to this disc so I'm still very satisfied with with what we did but I, I think it was a it was a lovely program it was great fun to do this this recording as well on the sfZ music label which was the in-house label at the time for His Majesty Sackbutts and Cornet. so bit of a departure from their regular repertoire, but we we built up quite a, um, a catalogue a small but very, very catalogue of, of, of organ music on, on that label so and it 's lovely for this to be part of that too
0: It was great fun to do, and I, I remember both of us listening around, particularly for the Brahms symphony. Um, to various recordings and, and, and there's that wonderful one isn't there uh, of Carlos Kleiber I think with the Bavarian State Orchestra. Yes 1996
1: yeah. absolutely wonderful yeah. and The, the spine chilling chords at the beginning of the Pascalia and the, that look of absolute intensity on his face I, no one like him before or since i think as a as a conductor and the, the combination of that music and and his his conducting is completely overwhelming i think
0: i think uh, one day there's going to be a carlos Kleiber podcast and i'm, I'm sure there's going to be a, a clamor of people to take part I mean, we, you know we, we, we i could
1: think you know, of a few people who would love to be part of that actually but. we
0: could go on on that I'm, I'm aware of the time as well but i do want to just thinking about recordings perhaps as a final point to make um, how do you see the future of recordings? Because now, obviously, at the moment, those of us playing the organ can't easily get out to pipe organs in cathedrals or churches. Um, I'm not a great fan, uh, put, put it on the record, I'm not a great fan of, you know, my favourite organ music, volume 35 and a half. I think the time of that probably has passed. W- where do you think recorded music could go now?
1: Um, I, it's a very difficult one. I mean, in, in the wake of doing invocations... I ask myself a lot of questions about this, not not all of which I've I've found an answer to yet. But I certainly think that that um, that digital online recordings are going to have to be the future. And quite apart from anything else, I just think of the number of bits of plastic that we called into being by doing this recording, and that's not an environmentally right, sustainable thing to do. And uh, whereas these um, online digital recordings are, but I think platforms like Spotify, you lose so much of the. The project, you know, all the, the programme notes and the information that goes with it is so much harder to access and everything becomes so much more fragmented, so I wonder whether the um, the era of the, the 45 minutes an hour, 70 minute recital disc has gone and we'll be seeing much more of things like, uh, there's a very fine video that Matthew Martin made of his uh, St Albans triptych and it's available on, on YouTube, uh, oh, that's a great piece great nice. piece great playing and, and but also uh, it's it's whole and complete in itself it's easily accessible it's you know this, this could be much more of um the future of, of recording something that's more concentrated more intense more focused and uh, you, you can release them in, in a steadier stream as opposed to you know doing a, a recording every two or three years I don't know uh, I, I don't have many answers but but certainly when I Started telling people about invocations. They said, "Well, when will it be on Spotify?" And I said, "Well, I've got a box them in the card, You know, one of those. Yes. And there's, I, I don't have a CD player anymore. And that you know, lots of people don't. And and I'm sitting here, you know, having this conversation with my Bluetooth speakers and my laptop. And my laptop doesn't have a CD player. And you know, the the technology is is leaving it behind. And I think the classical world in particular needs to 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 catch up with that a little bit. But at the same time. I like having a shelf of CDs, and I say a shelf. I mean, thirty shelves of CDs. I like it. I, I like having books. I like the physical thing as well. So, but I think an evolution is 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 necessary and and I- inevitable. And I, I think that shorter, focused, possibly video, possibly audio only, recording, or 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 something that's made with a you know, um, uh, interesting, videos. I remember Richard R recording engineer brought his drone and he had it flying around taking uh, nice video snapshots which he used in promotional material and, and that, that sort of amalgamation of of visual and, and audio is another thing that's, that's you know readily available um, but the idea of that I, I think also the idea of downloading really large files isn't necessarily the answer think about all the external hard drives you have to pack this onto and then it's just yes. another another form of library that's just less convenient, really, in in a way, because you can't just go and pick the CD off the shelf and thread in the player. So I really don't know. It's the answer, but I, I'm expecting to see more online, less physical uh, recordings, fewer physical recordings, or less physical recording, but but things that are more focused,
0: perhaps. I want something to mull over, isn't it? I think I. Pr- with regret, I probably ought to call it a day there, Hugh, because I, I, I think any one of these topics, we could probably do a separate podcast. So thanks ever so much for chatting. As ever, it's a real pleasure to talk to you. And uh, I'll just, just mention the two pieces of yours which are going to be heard on Monday. There's the hymn prelude on, uh, on the hymn tune, Vulpius, and then also, which is a, quite a loud fanfare type piece. And then we're going to hear your, your very gentle Hetzleaves to Jesu, and they're going to be interspersed with uh, lists Funerae, and then the recital will end with the arrangement of the final movement, the Passacaglia from Brahms Four. So, Hugh, thank you again for joining us. My
1: absolute pleasure, David. Wonderful to talk to you. And thank you for having me. All right.
0: Me. Thank you. And uh, to all our listeners, do tune in next week when uh, my colleague Ben Sauners is going to be our guest presenter. And he's going to be interviewing Professor Owen Murray, who is the head of Accordion at the royal academy of music and that's ahead of an accordion recital given by kuan yu zhang the week after so thank you for listening do tune in next week and goodbye